It's March 25, 1995. Warm spring sunshine washes over the sidewalks of Pensacola, Florida. The city is often referred to as the cradle of naval aviation, thanks to the first ever naval air station that opened here in 1914. Tens of thousands have taken to the skies after receiving their training here, including famous alumni like Neil Armstrong, the first man to set foot on the moon. Today, an entirely different link to the skies will surface. Dwayne Weber is dying. He and his wife, Joe know that time is running out. He has been suffering from kidney disease for several years now, and he no longer has the strength to fight it. Weber tells doctors that he wants to come off dialysis. They make it quite clear that if they oblige, he's looking at a matter of days to live maybe even hours. After a long, drawn-out battle, he's ready to throw in the towel and reiterates his wishes. Joe settles in, determined to spend every last moment she can with him. Without the dialysis machine to step in where his own body is failing him, Weber goes downhill fast. It's hard for Joe to watch. Doctors keep him sedated, but it's as if being on the final stretch is sending his mind into overdrive. He talks sometimes to Joe, sometimes just to himself, recounting events from years ago. They've been married 17 years, but some of what he speaks about predates even that. She takes comfort in his voice, knowing she won't be able to hear it for much longer. Weber wiggles around trying to get comfortable, and Joe goes over to adjust his pillow for him. As she does, he grunts with the effort of raising his head up. She thinks he's doing it to make her job easier, but he starts talking again. Joe, he says, you and I have got to talk. He starts telling her about jumping out of a plane and her brow creases in confusion. You jumping out of a plane, she says. Come on, give me a break. Whether it's her words or just his own frustration at not explaining himself clearly, Weber snaps at her with a strength that takes her by surprise for a man in his condition. Well, let it die with me, he shouts. A nurse bustles in and he sinks back into his pillow, frustrated. Joe steps back as the nurse gives him a shot to help him with the pain. Weber keeps mumbling something about a plane and Joe is still trying to make sense of it as the nurse disappears, leaving them alone again. Weber finds the strength from somewhere to raise himself up one last time. He speaks what will become an infamous line. I'm Dan Cooper. Other than managing to tell Joe he loves her one last time, these are his final words. Weber slips into unconsciousness and Joe stands vigil over the next few hours as his breathing becomes labored, slowing, until finally, it stops altogether. Those last few words prove that even after nearly two decades of marriage, there could be a side to her husband that he has kept hidden. Over the next few months, memories of her husband shift into a different perspective, and Joe is forced to reevaluate everything she thought she knew about him. The name he used on his deathbed, Dan Cooper, 
is one that dominated headlines back in 1971. A name linked to one of the most intriguing crimes in American history that still captures the imagination decades later. Could it be that Dwayne Weber's dying words hold the key to the only unsolved hijacking in U.S. airspace? More importantly, could his confession be the answer to one of the most enduring myths in American folklore? Who is D.B. Cooper? At the moment of death, people often have an overwhelming need to get their biggest secret off their chests. From murder, fake identities, illicit affairs, and even government cover-ups. This show dives deep into the world's most explosive deathbed confessions. This is the story of D.B. Cooper, of the people who claimed to be him on their deathbed. It's about a crime that grabbed the attention of the nation, a daring hijack carried out right under the noses of the FBI. The man who stepped into the spotlight for one day, then vanished like a ghost. A seemingly endless list of suspects that stretched law enforcement to breaking point. And one of the biggest riddles in modern day America. Who was the man behind the myth of D.B. Cooper? I'm a Stephanie Hakeman, and this is Deathbed Confessions. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Airplane hijackings aren't a modern phenomenon. The first recorded incident takes place in 1931. 28 years after the Wright brothers' historic first flight. Like many that follow, it's politically motivated, carried out by Peruvian revolutionaries. In 1958, in an attempt to curb the number of attempted hijackings, the Federal Aviation Act imposes severe penalties on those who attempt it. Later that year, the first armed air marshals begin traveling undercover, and in 1964, the FAA rules that all cockpit doors must be locked during flights. 
During the 60s, there are 100 attempts to hijack an aircraft. While only 23 are successful, it's an alarming trend that shows no signs of slowing. By the 70s, commercial air travel has exploded in popularity. In the years since World War II, the experience of building large bombers capable of carrying heavy payloads translates well into designing big commercial aircrafts. The most common kind of hijack continues to be politically motivated, in particular with the ban on American aircrafts flying to Cuba. It's often Cuban nationals looking to hitch a ride home who account for the majority of hijackings. Between 1968 and 1972, no fewer than 90 of these take place. It's a high-risk crime and a difficult one to walk away from. Aircrafts are easily tracked on radar and they usually end with police waiting in large numbers on a runway to scoop up the hijackers as they land. Authorities constantly try to stay one step ahead of criminals, evolving security measures and policing the airways. But just as they evolve, so do the hijackers. And in 1971, one man finds a way to show them just how easy it is to pull off what many consider to be the perfect crime. Portland International Airport is a hive of activity on the afternoon of November 24th, 1971. With Thanksgiving less than 12 hours away, passengers flock in their hundreds to make their way home in time to celebrate with family and friends. It's still a relatively innocent and trusting time, with little in the way of security measures. There are no metal detectors and passengers don't even need to show any formal ID to board their plane. It's enough to flash your ticket at the gate and you'll be waved through. A bored-looking lady on the ticket desk for Northwest Orient Airlines looks up as a well-dressed businessman approaches. He's wearing a dark suit with dark hair slicked back and carrying an attache case. The man identifies himself as Dan Cooper and buys a one-way ticket to Seattle with cash. He walks out onto the tarmac, just one more face amongst the three dozen other travelers that trudge up the stairs at the rear of the craft. He draws glances from several fellow passengers for the dark sunglasses he puts on once he's inside the craft. One of the stewardesses, Florence Schaffner, shows people to their seats, helping a few stow their luggage and handing out in-flight magazines. Cooper is in the back row, sitting in the middle of three seats. And as Florence walks past, he reaches out, handing her a folded piece of paper. She's used to being hit on by male passengers and assumes he's doing just that. She tucks the note into her jacket pocket without opening it and carries on along the aisle. When she returns minutes later, he leans across the spare aisle seat and catches her attention. Miss, I want you to read that note, he says in a firm but quiet voice. She smiles politely, reaching in to pull the note out, but continues to the rear of the plane. The plane has just started to roll along the runway. Whatever it says, there'll be time to speak to him once they're in the air. She's almost to the row of seats at the very back of the craft reserved for cabin crew when she looks down and reads a message that makes her falter, eyes widening in surprise. Her fellow stewardess, Tina Mucklau, is already strapped in and sees something in Schaffner's face that worries her. Florence doesn't say a word. She just hands the note to Tina. It's short and to the point. 
she's not being hit on at all. Far from it. The note reads, Miss, you're being hijacked. I've got a bomb. Come sit next to me. Tina grips the note in her hand and walks past Florence on shaky legs to row 18, sliding into the empty aisle seat. The man flips open the catches on his attache case and slowly lifts the lid. Inside, she sees a bundle of eight red sticks that look like dynamite. They're strapped together with duct tape, wires snake out, connecting them to a large battery. As if this isn't evidence enough that his note is deadly serious, he tells Tina that whatever happens, he won't be taken alive. Up in the front of the cockpit, the pilot, Captain William Scott, is blissfully unaware of the drama unfolding in the cabin behind him. He continues taxiing along the runway like he has a hundred times before. He's just about to open the throttle for takeoff when a series of chimes from the instrument panel distracts him. It's one of a prearranged series of signals used by the cabin crew. One chime is their way of asking if the pilot would like a cup of coffee. A series of chimes like those he hears now, though, signals an emergency of some kind. Scott picks up the phone that connects to the cabin crew. Tina's voice is surprisingly steady as she tells him they're being hijacked. It's too late to abort the takeoff, and without knowing exactly what their hijacker wants, Flight 305 powers down the runway and glides upward towards Seattle as planned. It's only once they're airborne that Cooper speaks again. He orders a shot of bourbon and asks Tina to light his cigarette for him. For a moment, she's puzzled as to why he can't do this himself, then realizes that in one hand, he's gripping what looks like a trigger switch that's connected to his briefcase. It's only now that he shares his demands. He produces a second note that Florence takes to the cockpit. $200,000 in used $20 bills, four parachutes, and a fuel truck to be standing by in Seattle to refuel when they land. Captain Scott immediately radios air traffic control in Seattle. They alert local and federal authorities. The remaining passengers on board are still oblivious to their perilous predicament. All they're told is that their arrival at Seattle is delayed due to a minor technical difficulty. Those in the air may be blissfully unaware, but on the ground, it's all hands on deck. Local FBI agents race to the airport by their own admission with no fixed plan of how to handle this. It's different from any other hijack they've dealt with before. The request for parachutes suggests Cooper has no intention of leaving the plane anywhere they'll be able to lay in wait for him. The airline's president authorizes payment of the ransom, and authorities tell Captain Scott to fly a holding pattern when he reaches Seattle to give them time to both mobilize their people and get the money together. Back on board Flight 305, Tina is still sitting beside Cooper as if they're traveling companions. She's understandably nervous and worried that saying the wrong thing could have disastrous consequences, but curiosity gets the better of her. Do you have a grudge against the airline? She asks him. I don't have a grudge against your airline, miss, he replies. I just have a grudge. Who that's with, he doesn't say. 
This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. He orders a second bourbon and, to her surprise, insists on paying for his drinks. He even adds to his demands, asking for meals for the crew to be ready when they land. Eventually, at quarter to six, they touch down at Seattle, almost three hours after leaving Portland. Rain hammers down in heavy sheets as Captain Scott follows Cooper's instructions to taxi to a section of runway. He orders all shades to be pulled down in case any snipers lurk out there looking for a shot. The airline sends a member of staff out to deliver the chutes and cash. Cooper allows Tina to meet them at the foot of the rear steps. For reasons only known to him, he rejects the first four military-style ones they offer, eventually accepting four civilian shoots from a local skydiving school. The money has been sourced from a number of local banks, unmarked bills, every one of them having been photographed before being packaged up. Cooper takes a few minutes to inspect the bags. Once he's satisfied, all is as it should be. He allows the passengers to disembark, along with Florence Schaffner. It's only once they get on the tarmac and see law enforcement officers waiting that those on board actually realize that they've just been the victims of a hijacking. Tina goes to leave as well, but Cooper tells her she's staying on board, along with the captain, first officer, and flight engineer. The FBI agent in charge, Ralph Himmelsbach, asks for a face-to-face -face meeting with Cooper while the plane refuels, but Cooper declines. He issues specific instructions to the crew as to what will happen next. They are to take off and head southeast towards Mexico City. He tells Captain Scott that they must travel at the slowest speed possible without stalling. The landing gear must stay down, flaps set at 15 degrees, and the cabin remain unpressurized. The first officer points out that this will drastically reduce their range. They'll need to refuel again before Mexico City. Cooper thinks on this for a moment before agreeing on Reno as a suitable waypoint. Cooper's final demand is that the aircraft take off with the rear door open and stairs extended. Officials object on safety grounds, but he points out that he'll just do this anyway once airborne. This is the last communication with him before he directs Captain Scott to start up the engines. Cooper moves to the next phase of his plan, although what that might be is still anybody's guess. The fact he's asked for a total of four shoots with five people, including himself, remaining on board, leads the crew to believe that whatever his plan is, that they are very much still part of it, or at least most of them are. At 7.36 that evening, Flight 305 takes off again with only five people aboard. This time, they have company. Two fighter jets from nearby McCord Air Base follow behind, one above and one below. Once they're up in the air, Cooper instructs Tina to go to the cockpit and close the door, leaving him alone in the main cabin. Around 20 minutes later, a little after 8 p.m., 
a warning light flashes, alerting Captain Scott to the fact that the rear stairs have been activated. He uses the intercom to ask Cooper if he needs any help. The reply that comes back is short and to the point. No, says Cooper. This is the last time anyone on board will hear his voice. Three minutes later, a change in cabin air pressure confirms the rear door is now open. The noise levels, even in the sealed cockpit, are such that the crew have to raise their voices to be heard. Less than a minute goes by before there's a loud thud, accompanied by a juddering sensation as the rear stairs bounce back up. All four crew members feel a pressure bump in their ears, confirming the cabin has been resealed. First officer, Bill Radizak, turns to Captain Scott and says, mark your screens because I think our friend just took leave of us. It's another couple of hours until the plane lands in Reno, and there is a welcoming committee waiting. A mix of FBI, state troopers, and local police swarm across the tarmac, but halt at a respectable distance. Captain Scott confirms over the radio that Cooper is no longer aboard, and an FBI bomb squad cautiously enter the aircraft, searching inch by painstaking inch for the attache case they now know contains Cooper's bomb. Like its owner, the case is nowhere to be found. And with that, Cooper has jumped out of a plane and into folklore. Thanks to extensive media coverage that follows, the story reaches a national audience. The FBI takes the lead and Himmelsbach throws a substantial amount of manpower at the hunt for Cooper. They do manage to recover physical evidence from the plane, but it's not conclusive. A total of 66 prints are lifted from the jet that can't be matched against any of the other passengers or crew. They also find a clip-on tie that they believe Cooper was wearing when he boarded. Plus, he's left behind two of the four parachutes. Every person who had been aboard is interviewed extensively, and thanks mainly to input from the two stewardesses, Tina and Florence, a series of sketches are produced. They depict Cooper both with and without his sunglasses. He's described as being between 5 foot 10 and 6 feet with an average build. Best estimates put him in his mid-40s with his hair in a distinctive style known as Marcelled, where it has something of a wave in it from heated tongs. There's an early school of thought from the FBI, which is that he may not have survived the jump. The low air temperature at that altitude and the onset of winter made for harsh conditions. As far as anyone knows, he leapt out wearing the suit and leather loafers he'd walked on board with. These would have provided almost no protection from the worsening wintry weather. It's not enough for Himmelsbach though. He wants a body or a live suspect. Nothing else will do. There's a lot of speculation about him based on how he pulled off the hijacking too. Cooper's demands are picked apart and a profile starts to emerge from the FBI. His specific requests around airspeed and flap settings suggest a familiarity with aircraft. He knew that the stairs could be lowered during flight to allow him to jump, a fact never disclosed to civilian flight crews. This causes some to theorize that he might have an aviation background, either as a pilot, an engineer, or have even served in the Air Force. Armed with the beginnings of a profile, 
they cast the net wide for possible suspects, starting with one who will prove to be instrumental in how the case is reported moving forward. The first thing the FBI do is look for men who fit the description and who share the same name, on the off chance he has used his real name or the same alias on previous occasions. They interview an Oregon man known as D.B. Cooper. A local journalist on a deadline gets wind of it and rushes his report. In his haste, he confuses the suspect with the Dan Cooper name that the hijacker gave when he purchased the ticket. It's an easy error to make, and it's soon repeated and republished by other outlets. From this point on, D.B. Cooper becomes the pseudonym everyone runs with. Regardless of whether the name is real or fake, the scale of the task of finding the hijacker soon becomes apparent. Neither of the fighter pilots following the plane saw Cooper jump, nor did they see any sign of a parachute opening. It's possible that the limited visibility, combined with cloud cover, masked Cooper's exit. Any one of a number of variables could have a huge impact on the search area below. Tiny differences in environmental conditions, estimates as to the speed they were traveling, and even the exact time Cooper plummeted into freefall before pulling the ripcord will drastically alter where he could have landed. Himmelsbach attempts a recreation in the days that follow by pushing a 200-pound sled from an open-air stair. Initial guesstimates based on this, plus timing of the change in air pressure noticed by the crew, place Cooper's landing spot in an area to the southwest of Mount St. Helens in the state of Washington. They focus their efforts in Clark County and Cowlitz County, searching on foot and by helicopter. Sheriff's deputies even go door to door around local farmhouses. Try as they might, there's not a trace of Cooper, nothing to even suggest he landed, let alone where he might be now. Some speculate that he came down in a remote area of wilderness and didn't survive the impact. Several times, areas of broken tree canopy are sighted from the air, but every single lead is a dead end. It's as if Cooper has vanished into thin air. Four weeks after the hijacking, with the search yielding nothing, the FBI tries a different tack. The serial numbers from the ransom money were all recorded, and they distribute these to banks, casinos, and racetracks. The airline offers a reward to anyone who helps find the money, promising 15% of anything recovered, but nobody steps forward to claim a cent. It's not until several months later, in April 1972, the first plausible suspect presents himself in a spectacular fashion by committing, of all things, another hijack. Richard McCoy is a 30-year-old former Green Beret, veteran of two tours in Vietnam, and known to be a keen skydiver. On April 7, 1972, he boards a plane in Denver, Colorado, armed with an unloaded gun and a paperweight that resembles a hand grenade. He demands half a million dollars and four parachutes, both of which he gets when they touch down at San Francisco airport. McCoy orders the pilot to take off again, bailing out somewhere over the city of Provo in Utah. Unlike the original hijack, authorities are able to match prints taken from a magazine McCoy had read while on board the plane, 
and he's arrested two days later. The fact these prints don't match any on the flight hijacked by D.B. Cooper doesn't deter many in the press, as none of those on board last year's flight can be conclusively shown to have come from Cooper. McCoy is sentenced to 45 years, but he'll only serve two before escaping and being killed in a shootout with FBI agents. Although many believe the similarities between hijacks can't be a coincidence, the FBI doesn't formally consider McCoy a suspect in the Cooper case. First off, witnesses in the Cooper case described him as being in his mid-40s. McCoy, on the other hand, is only 29 when Cooper jumps from the plane. Plus, there's evidence to suggest that he may, in fact, have been in Vegas on the day of the Portland hijacking. There's another brief flash of hope in October 1972, when a journalist claims to not only know that Cooper survived, but says he has met with him. Carl Fleming, editor-in-chief at a Los Angeles tabloid, says he has paid $30,000 for Cooper's exclusive story after receiving proof of the hijacker's identity in the form of two bills from the ransom money. Sadly for Fleming, the FBI confirms the bills to be fake, and two local men are arrested and charged with extortion. In 1975, after a fruitless three years of searching, Northwest Orient's insurance company are ordered by the Minnesota Supreme Court to pay the airline's claim for the lost ransom money. It's as close to admitting defeat as anyone has come, although the case is still an active one as far as the FBI are concerned. In 1976, there are fresh discussions around what, if any, statute of limitations should apply if anyone is ever arrested for the hijacking. Opinions are divided until November that year when a Portland grand jury returns an indictment for John Doe, a.k.a. Dan Cooper. It allows them to press charges at any point in the future for air piracy and violation of the Hobbs Act that covers any robbery that crosses state lines. All they have to do now is find him. The next few years yield nothing. No suspects, no evidence, no trace of the man known as D.B. Cooper. In 1978, a deer hunter returns from a trip near Castle Rock, Washington. As well as his fair share of game, he's found something else of interest. While he was out tracking deer, he stumbled across a placard showing instructions for opening the rear stairs of a Boeing 727, the same aircraft that Cooper had jumped from eight years previously. It's an intriguing development, but not one that they can link conclusively to the hijack or use to locate the man who carried it out. They'll have to wait another two years until 1980 for the first meaningful piece of evidence. It's still a full 15 years before Dwayne Weber will utter his now infamous deathbed confession. But what turns up on a riverbank in Washington state is the first undeniable evidence that can be traced directly back to the hijack. What is it? Well, it's the next best thing to finding Cooper himself. It's taken nine years, but they finally have their hands on a stack of bills confirmed to be part of the original ransom money. At last, Himmelsback thinks, he might yet get his man. Next week, on Deathbed Confessions. 
the authorities are buoyed by the discovery of the ransom, and it injects new life into the flagging investigation. But is it the springboard they hope for that leads them to Cooper himself? Or just another frustrating false dawn? Will Dwayne Weber's dying declaration 15 years from now turn out to be the final piece of the puzzle? Or is it the last lie from a man who has spent his life hiding the darker truth about himself behind a friendly facade? As it turns out, Dwayne Weber isn't the only person to claim the name of D.B. Cooper as his own. Not by a long shot. Deathbed Confessions is a Spotify original from Parcast, produced in partnership with Noiser. Executive produced by Max Cutler, Drew Cole, and Pascal Hughes. Developed by Julian Boireau for Parcast. Series produced by Addison Nugent. Written by Rob Scrag. Supervising editor, Kevin Pham. Sound design by Matias torres Sole. Sound supervisor, Tom Payne. Edited by Carla Flores and Rob Plummer. Mix master by Cody Reynolds-Shaw. Music by Oliver Baines and Dory McCauley.